This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Happy Monday and welcome back to the WOMED. I'm really pumped about this episode. I know I say that a lot, but when you love what you do, it's easy. But for real, health policy is something we don't always think about or realize its importance until we're burnt out and it's too late. This week, I get to speak with former PBS health correspondent, Susan Denser. Susan has worked on a range of healthcare policies and is passionate about explaining policy and making it relatable, as well as bringing more clinicians to Washington to help make these decisions. I hope you're ready. This one really lit a fire in me. Okay, guys, going out on a limb here with this, but there's nothing more nursey energy than this. Make sure y'all are registered to vote. Double check your polling locations. Read up on not just the presidential candidates, but Senate and local government officials running as well. Make a plan to vote. Whether that is requesting your mail-in ballot, make sure you request it now and that you drop it off at a ballot box or read up on correctly filling it out and mailing it in so it actually does count and doesn't get discarded. Vote early if you can. The polling locations are going to be very busy on election day. Day shifters might have a more difficult time getting to the polls. This is where voting early is very helpful. Make a plan and vote, y'all. All right, good morning, Susan. Welcome to The Woman. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. It's great to be with you, Danielle. Thanks so much. For those of you who don't know, Susan Denser is, um, well, she was a health correspondent for PBS for a decade, correct? That's right. What all led you to that field? I mean, that I, my old co-host, that's like her ultimate goal is to be like a health correspondent. And she's a nurse practitioner, CVICU. She's, her brain is amazing. So. Oh, that's great. Well, I was a, a longtime uh, print journalist. Oh. I came up through the ranks at uh, some, some, um, Publications that used to be pretty big deals back in the day, they kind of faded from glory. Um, oh. Newsweek magazine. I uh, remember I, Newsweek. Yeah, I was the um, writer of business news for many years at Newsweek. I was, among other things, the Wall Street correspondent. Um, wow. And I, I actually was covering um, economic policy. Mm-hmm. And one day my editor threw me a story that uh, really was about for-profit hospital companies. And uh, I started reporting this story. It was not something I had done previously. And I stumbled into the fact that there were some major health policy changes mm-hmm. of what that were going to potentially affect the fortunes of this, these companies. And um, one thing led to another. And I said, you know, there's this really interesting area of healthcare that is a kind of a business. <laughs> Yeah, the first time I had ever thought of healthcare as having a business aspect to it, but obviously it did. It had for many years, and as you know, that was long ago. Uh, So healthcare at the time, I want to say, was probably about seven percent of the gross domestic product. It was pretty small, and of course, today it's almost eighteen percent of a much much larger economy. So the Mm -hmm. business aspect of healthcare has, if anything, only boomed massively since then. But as that was starting to happen back in the 80s, I said, you know, this is really interesting stuff. There's almost nobody reporting or writing about it, which was is hard to believe now, but it was true then. Yeah. And I said, I, I think I'm just going to start finding, learning as much as I can about this. So I, I, I did. I spent several years uh, still at Newsweek writing more and more about healthcare and health policy. I went up to Harvard on a journalism fellowship and spent that year pretty much devoted to learning more about healthcare and health policy. Then I uh, moved down to Washington and became the chief economics correspondent at U.S. News and World Report with the deal that I could devote a lot of my time to writing about health care and health policy. And so I covered many of the major, major health policy fights, really, battles uh, of that that era. And then 
when I went to the PBS NewsHour in 1998, it was to create the first um, health policy unit that the that the NewsHour had ever had, devoted specifically to health policy. And then when I got there, it turned out that that was not just going to be a, a job covering health policy. It was going to be essentially everything that had to do with health and health care oh, that wow. came across our desks. So I ended up really as the full, fully functioning on-air health correspondent for the News Hour for 10 years. I was then wooed away to become the editor-in-chief of the uh, leading health policy journal of the era, uh, Health Affairs. And uh, so I did that for five years and got even deeper into policy as a consequence of that. Oh, wow. I I mean, like my head's spinning. Like, <laughs> So you didn't have necessarily like a background in medicine. So like how much does like a background in healthcare necessarily help you in like speaking to like policy because policy is more business. I'm a nurse, you know, coming from the bedside, like I only know the medical world. Like that's what I'm more fluent in. Like, yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a problem in health policy generally because the fields, these fields tend to get really siloed. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who are clinicians of one sort or another. They're physicians, they're nurses, et cetera. Some of them get really interested in health policy and know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Others of it never, ever kind of come to grips with it until they wake up one day late in their careers and they go, oh my God, healthcare is a mess or yes, things are happening that I don't understand or things are going off the rails or whatever. And then they sort of kind of stumble into the fact that there are all of these forces much bigger than they are shaping what goes on in the healthcare system. And then they wake up and realize, oh yeah, there's policy here. <laughs> um, yeah. There are laws that get passed that affect health care. Let's take, for example, the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. There are people making decisions in Washington, either members of Congress, their staffs, the agency people. Um, look at what's going on now in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of what is, I guess we would say, going wrong in the pandemic is a consequence of policy decisions being made or not being made. Yeah. That's really what I got quite interested in. How how do all of these forces come together to create uh, the guardrails around what it is that the healthcare system does for good and for ill? Mm-hmm. And what is the what is the effect of all of that on all of us as as citizens ultimately? Mm-hmm. The um, as I was saying, I think there there's definitely, from my perspective, I'm always shocked that people in healthcare don't think more about health policy than many of them do. I, I mm-hmm. teach a lot in um, medical school curricula as well as other places, and I I'm just always shocked that there isn't more health policy in medical school curricula because policy is going to have as much impact on people's lives in the healthcare profession as, you know, as what they learned about anatomy, <laughs> you know? You know, it's very and, true. Yeah, and uh, just at least getting introduced, you, you can never learn all of this in, in, you know, one health policy course. I mean, the knowledge mm-hmm. I have is the knowledge I've picked up over several decades of doing this. Yeah. Well, but um, but you can at least get exposed to the basic concepts mm-hmm. and I'm alert to it. It's like it's like going to a museum after you've taken one art history course. You're going <laughs> to, even on the basis of one art history course, you're going to start looking at paintings a different way. Same, right. thing, same thing with health policy, to at least be introduced to the basics and understand that there are these forces that are going to shape things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is really, really important. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my nursing school wasn't very strong in our, I shouldn't say they didn't produce like strong nursing leaders per se. It just, you know, 
that course was put at the very end of our senior year and you know we're all checked out we're worried about you know completing our senior thesis and our final nursing rotations in like our practicums and like that leadership course was like the furthest thing from the majority of our minds and and I feel like in that is where they they stuck in some policy stuff and I think part of what leads to like nursing burnout and like the frustration with how we're feeling in our current jobs is that we don't really have a fully a full understanding or even like a a a small understanding of what actually goes into healthcare policy. Uh, I th- I think that's right. And I I know a lot of nurses in particular whose first uh sort of entry point into health policy is around what what is a very important issue in nursing, which is scope of practice, mm-hmm. right? And particularly the degree to which nurses and advanced nurse practitioners in particular have or have not been allowed to practice independently across the country, mm-hmm. whether they have to practice under quote-unquote physician supervision, uh, how much prescribing they can do, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, after you've been through nursing school and then you've gotten your either your doctor of nursing practice or whatever. And then you bump up against the fact that depending on what state you're in, your capabilities of doing things are, are either more, more broad or more limited. Mm-hmm. Then you go, oh, well, this is, what's this about? Well, that's scope of practice. And yeah. uh, in, in the U.S., of course, we've delegated a lot of the so-called police powers to states. So mm-hmm. states generally have regulated many, most as, many aspects and almost all aspects of the of the health professions around and licensure and so forth. And of course, for years, many state legislators were do, legislatures were dominated by physicians. Mm-hmm. So physicians viewed advanced nurse practitioners often as a threat. Not all do, of course. The right. enlightened ones don't, but <laughs> there are many unenlightened uh, who do. And mm-hmm. so they managed to basically throttle back um, nurses and advanced nurse practitioners in particular uh, in many jurisdictions. And in fact, uh, one, of, one of the stories I covered years ago when I was at U.S. News was at one point uh, there was a lot of concern about a, a so-called nursing shortage. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you still hear periodically talked about. And what it really comes down to is there's not a shortage of nurses. There's sometimes lack of availability of enough nurses in particular markets who want to work in hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, there are plenty of nurses there. They're just working for insurance companies as case managers or something else because mm-hmm. not everybody wants to work the hours that you need to work if you're in the hospital or the shifts you need to work in the hospital. So Periodically around the country, depending on what people are willing to pay, it's harder or easier to hire nurses. And that's that really was the issue back then, even as as it is in some instances today. Anyway, because of this, the American Medical Association of the time decided that what what really needed to happen is that we needed to create a a new class of uh, registered care technicians. Mm-hmm. RCTs, okay, who would be male <laughs> by and large, okay. And when they described the kinds of things that they wanted these RCTs to do, it sounded a whole lot like nurses. <laughs> and okay. so, so it looked like what the AMA was trying to do was um, create a job that was just like nursing that wasn't called nursing and that was for men because it was perceived at the time that men were not going to want to become nurses. So the AMA got to work trying to create this new position. And of course, as you can imagine, the instead of destigmatizing, like (laughs) that nursing is just for women. (laughs) Right. So the nursing uh, uh, associations and groups went, as you would predict, ballistic. Yep. <laughs> Sounds and, about right. And said, 
what the hell are you doing? And there was a huge fight with the AMA over this. And the AMA eventually had to back down. And the whole notion of registered care technicians died on the vine. Well, that, you know, welcome to health policy, right? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes health policy, you know, originates outside, say, the Congress or the government. It, it In that case, it was basically a movement started by the AMA. It ran smack up into the opposition from the nursing unions. The nurses were able to call in their allies, uh, mm-hmm. lawmakers and others who basically started, you know, asking questions about this and looking into it. The AMA, if it had gone ahead with this, would have had to create, you know, schools for registered care technicians. Mm -hmm. Um, There would have to be curriculums. They would have to be licensed in states. So lots of things were going to have to happen downstream in Mm -hmm. the policy world to support this movement of registered care technicians. In the end, none of that happened because the AMA backed down. So that's, again, a, just a, I think in a nutshell, uh, illustrates why, why, why it's a good idea to think about health policy. Yeah, I'm, my mind's blown. I mean, thinking about just if that had gone through and like the, the amount of discord in the hospitals then between, you know, registered care technicians and nurses and like, would they have even be seen as, equal in the hospital setting it sounds like like the the male dominated physician world wanted to bring in more men which i yeah wow that's that's clear (laughs) it's clearly what it was what in part was behind it and yes instead of what has come to pass right which is that Mm -hmm. men have gone into nursing and they're great nurses. We have a we we do actually have a fair amount of male nurses that listen to the podcast. So shout out to you guys because thank you. <laughs> yeah, so men have gone into nursing. Some of, some of my good friends who are clinicians are nurse nurses who are men. Mm-hmm. You know, they the the stigma piece doesn't matter to them, or if it matters, right. them, it's a joke now. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, the, you know, they they got used long ago. They got used to getting teased by their friends. <laughs> yeah, not yeah. In the field, and they know it's nonsense, and so they've they've moved on. And that, yes, let us you know, let us try to contemplate what would have happened if this movement to create these RCTs had succeeded, and then mm. and, and you had really cemented in these gender roles. Yeah, what what a difference it would have made. Oh my gosh. Thank thank God that didn't happen. Yep. Yep. Well, and I like to think I was only one person writing about it. Although I will right. say it, it was a story that pretty much had not made it into the general news media before I wrote about it. Um, and I like to think well, I had thank a small, you. small role. It was a small role in bringing it to light and uh, causing people to wake up and see what was what was happening and Mm -hmm. decide in the end the majority clearly decided it was a bad idea well that's where in the written word is just so powerful and I like knowing this now I'm I'm even more grateful to you and the work that you have done in shedding light on these topics because especially as nurses we're and I'm speaking into, you know, those in like the hospital fields and or in like nursing homes, you know, we're, we're tired, like we're working all day, all night, or we're emotionally depleted. And the last thing we want to do when we come home is, is thinking about the, the next way we're going to be like, excuse me for saying this, but like shit on at work, you know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Which is, which is a reason uh, mm-hmm. And this is the good side of being in a leadership course because mm-hmm. it's it's good to be awakened early on, yes, to the reality that and 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 it isn't for everybody. Some people are mm-hmm. not going to want to do these roles because they're not easy. But but rising up to a leadership level, either within an organization or uh, or a healthcare organization or a nursing organization or even even moving into uh, a, a policymaking role uh, 
in the government uh, mm -hmm. with a clinical background is is a first of all, it's a really interesting career path for people. Yeah, and it's important. It's important to have those um, those capabilities represented in policymaking. I was saying earlier, I I thought it was um, uh, regrettable that a lot of clinicians don't know about policy, but it's also mm -hmm. true that when policy isn't informed by clinical knowledge, that can also be problematic. Right. And so having people who have been clinicians who are also in policymaking roles, I think is important. And some of the best people I've met over the years who are in positions of authority in the government around health policy, mm -hmm. many of them maintain a clinical practice just because they want to stay uh, connected, first yeah. of all, to, to that line of work. And they want their, even their policy perspective grounded uh, by the realities of day-to-day -day life in the clinic. I, I'm so happy to hear that. And it's one thing that I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time like encouraging some other guests and stuff that I've interviewed on here who are, you know, just, I feel like they're, they're just powerhouses in the medical field and they have a great voice. They're, um, they're not scared to share it. And I'm like, y'all need to like run for Congress, run you know, be senators, be like, figure out a way because we need more voices represent, like more like clinical voices represented in the government. Uh, absolutely. And and in policy positions right. of, of all sorts. One of the other jobs I had in life, I was the senior policy advisor to a big foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is the largest philanthropy in the U.S. that is focused solely on health and healthcare issues in the U.S. And um, the, the that foundation for years has run a fellowship. It's called the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellows Program. Okay. And six or so, six to eight people a year are selected to come uh, to Washington, go through this fellowship. Uh, it has several months of orientation where you just, it's just a crash course on health policy issues and lots of meeting and greeting with people in aspects of health policy in Washington. And then um, the people go out and get a, a position either working on a congressional staff or in a, the office of a member of Congress or a, a job at one of the federal agencies and spend uh, the better part of a year in that role doing real health policy work, real on-the-ground health policy work. Wow. And that fellowship, which is aimed at mid-career mid people, mm -hmm. um, obviously draws people who have already been bitten a bit by the policy bug. Mm -hmm. um, some people come come and then go back to their institution. A lot of people come from from the academic field. They'll go back to their institution and they'll set up a center for health policy at their university, or they'll be involved in a, some sort of health policy educational effort. But a lot of people get bitten by the bug permanently and never go back, and they mm -hmm. stay in Washington. They go to work on the uh, on congressional staff, or they. Uh, somehow or other find their way into a permanent policy role because uh, life can be really interesting in those yeah ways. yeah you're I mean I'm not gonna lie I'm, I'm getting a little like oh well that sounds exciting <laughs> yep yep exactly in fact a, a friend of mine uh, Deb Troutman is a case in point she's the uh, was a, a nurse still mm -hmm. is had this fellowship got really interested in policy, worked uh, on the staff of Nancy Pelosi. Oh, wow. Is very close to Speaker Pelosi to this very day and mm -hmm. to uh, other, other people on Pelosi's staff uh, and um, is now the head of the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and, and in between her fellowship and, and her current job, she went back to Johns Hopkins, where she had been, and, and created the Center for Health Policy at Johns Hopkins. So she's kind of a case in point. And there are other nurses who've gone through the program who've also gone on to do comparable things and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and 
and really, really, I think made a difference. I always get so excited to go to the farmer's markets and get fresh vegetables and fruits. With the seasons changing, so will the available produce. I love to eat as clean as I can while still incorporating foods that taste really good. So whether I'm having a relaxing day or I'm on the go, I love having my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest works directly with farmers to harvest and freeze fruits and veggies at the peak of ripeness to lock in nutrients and taste. They never use preservatives, added sugar, or artificial ingredients, so you can name every single ingredient in your packaging. That makes me feel so much better about what's going in my body. With Daily Harvest, there's an option for any time of day. Delicious blend-and-go smoothies for breakfast, crisp flatbreads for lunch, and hearty grain bowls or savory soups for dinner. They even have plant-based ice cream, for which my stomach says thank you. Daily Harvest is also committed to minimizing their environmental impact. They are in the process of transitioning to 100% recyclable, plant-based, and renewable fiber packaging. So whether you're doing a home workout, going on a bike ride, or a hike, Daily Harvest is the easiest way to eat undeniably delicious, clean food. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter code WOMED for $25 off your first box. That's promo code WOMED for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. That's dailyharvest.com. Wow. I'm, I'm processing this knowledge and I'm like, who else needs to know about this? I'm so excited we're having this conversation because I hope that like anyone that's out there, you know, listening right now is thinking that like this is sparking a little bit of fire in them to, you know, help lead and like figure out these changes that need to be made in health policy. And I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I'm excited. I'm gonna look up this fellowship when we, uh, <laughs> when yeah. we finish yeah. this Good interview. Yes. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellows. Yeah. Okay. And, and even, you know, independent of getting a, a great fellowship like that, there mm-hmm. are just so many things that can be done and need to be done at the right. local level, you know, right. making your, if you're in a particular state, making your lawmakers aware of issues and challenges in healthcare that they have a role in, should have a role in addressing or creating. Mm-hmm. I know, I know a lot of, of, uh, in a lot of places around the country, uh, the, the clinical field has been really instrumental in bringing to the minds of legislature, legislators, why certain things should happen in healthcare that they aren't getting done. A classic is, as we know, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, the decision was made to write into the law an expansion of the Medicaid program mm-hmm. because the Medicaid program, which was aimed at the at poor people, really only covered about half of people in the country who were technically poor. And the, and because mm-hmm. of the way the law was written, the Medicaid program was a partnership between states and the federal government. And certain basic requirements were set at the federal level, and then states could add to the Medicaid program if they chose to do that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of states had to, had moved to cover a group of people who were known as the cleanest way to describe it as adults without dependent children. So this, okay. these are grown adults who don't have kids that they are that are that they that are classified as dependents for tax purposes, right? So right. think of a, you know, a, a, a 45-year-old man without dependent children or a 45-year-old woman or 50-year-old woman without dependent children. Mm-hmm. Well, in many, in many states, if you were above a, a certain income threshold and you were in that category, you could not qualify for Medicaid. And the income eligibility levels were pretty low. If you had income more than $6,000 a year in many states and you were in this category, an adult without dependent children, you could not qualify for Medicaid. Wow. $6,000 a year, like half the poverty level, right? Yeah. So what Congress did when when the ACA was enacted, it said, you know what, we're going to basically cover people up to 
this is a technical term, 138% of the federal poverty level. So basically okay. one, almost 1.4 times what we consider the poverty level. So it's, it's people just above what we classify as poverty, who frankly mm-hmm. are still pretty low income, right? Right. It's not a lot of money. Yeah. And, and the deal was that the federal government was going to pay 100% of the cost of this for a few years. And then the formula was going to drop a bit so that eventually the federal government was paying 90% of the money to cover this pool of people and states had to put up 10%. Okay. So by any stretch of imagination, it was a good deal for states because the federal government was going to pay most of the money Mm -hmm. to cover basically a pool of seven or 8 million poor people who didn't have health care coverage. Right. Well, then people who will know this story will know that uh, the, uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act was challenged in court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in mm-hmm. 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that the law was indeed constitutional, except for the Medicaid expansion piece, because the federal government couldn't force states to expand their Medicaid program if they didn't want to. So at that mm-hmm. point, the Medicaid expansion became optional. States didn't have to do it. They could. They could take Mm -hmm. all this federal money, give people more health insurance, or they could not do it. And as a consequence to this day, there are 14 states that still have elected not to expand their Medicaid programs, which means uh, that this pool of people, adults without dependent children, Mm -hmm. uh, just above the poverty level, and in some instances, below the poverty level, yeah. don't have, cannot qualify for Medicaid. And if you think about who is affected by this, sometimes it's people who have other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, mental illness is very common in this very, population. Very, very common. Um, it's people who um, have, you know, have frequently struggled through their lives. That's mm-hmm. part of the reason why they, are, you know, they don't necessarily have dependents. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they are in this pool of states that have not expanded Medicaid. One of the biggest being Texas, which now has the most uninsured people in the country of any state in the union, and and the uh-huh. highest uninsured rate. Uh, Tennessee is another one. North Carolina is another one where there have mm-hmm. been pitched battles over many many years over expanding Medicaid. The hospitals all want to see this population insured. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you know, they, they're still they're still required to treat people if they show up. We have this federal yeah. law in Tala that requires people to be treated if they show up for for on an emergency basis. They've got to be mm-hmm. treated and stabilized. So hospitals still have to do that. Mm-hmm. They either have to write this off as bad debt or charity care. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want to see Medicaid expanded. Um, almost all economic analyses that have been done show that. If you, if you do expand Medicaid in your state, uh, you're bringing in federal dollars. Those go to hospitals. It creates jobs. Mm-hmm. Because jobs are created, people pay more taxes, and there's overall economic benefit. There's not yeah. one analysis that has shown anything other than expanding Medicaid is of economic benefit to your state. And wow. despite all of that, we still have these 14 states that have not expanded Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And, um, but for some of the advocacy that has gone on by clinicians, this, this issue would remain buried in many states. I do a lot of work, uh, obviously, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the clinical community has kept this issue alive. The governor, uh, Roy Cooper, who's a Democrat, has been trying to get Medicaid expanded. The legislature is in Republican hands so that it hasn't gone through, but hope springs eternal. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is, as I say, the, it's the hospital association, the clinical community that are basically saying, you know, this, first of all, this is foolish for the state to be doing this economically. It's foolish, but also it's wrong. It's mm-hmm. immoral. Um, how can you just cut off a path to coverage for people who have no other 
practical way of getting it. So right. it's just another illustration of the fact that these these issues really matter, mm-hmm. and uh, and clinical voices need to be at the table, calling uh, c- calling you know our public representatives out on their lack of action in these arenas. Yes, yes. Thank you for being on this podcast and, and being able to to speak into so many of these these issues. I had, I had written down um, a question and I know I, I sent these to you and I was like, and I know, and I didn't want to offend you with the question because healthcare policy before, you know, this conversation really made my head spin and, and it still does like a, a little bit, but like thankful for this conversation, you're helping me to understand this. But I wrote down like, how do you, how do you make healthcare policy more interesting and get people more excited about like making these changes? I think uh, you, you have to connect it to people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to tell why these things matter in the lives of people. Um, and that's you know what what I loved about my job at the at the news hour is that I I could I could do that I could mm-hmm. tell stories about policy came down to the lives of people. If the debate yeah. was over whether Medicare should cover prescription drugs uh, that are taken, you know, outside of the hospital setting, which, you know, it's hard for, so wrap your brain around this one. Until 2003, the Medicare program, right, which Mm -hmm. basically is for people 65 and older, as well as disabled, disabled populations can qualify for Medicare under certain circumstances. So there are 10 million or so disabled people on Medicare as well. So this huge program covers the elderly, did not pay for prescription drugs taken on an outpatient basis until 2003. Wow. Okay. So. So like like insulin. Yeah. Yeah. Just nothing nothing was paid for, right? Wow. Until 2003. Now, a law had been passed in... 1987, the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act that had a drug benefit in it. Mm-hmm. It was a very contentious law, and for various reasons, it was repealed uh, before this drug benefit went into effect. So, from that point, basically, 19 from 1989 until 2003, there was no drug benefit. Uh, and, and oh there my God! Long-standing. <laughs> you know, set of proposals. We've got to get a drug benefit. We've got to get a drug benefit. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the 2000 election, th- that it was a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And Al Gore was running for the presidency against George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Whether there was going to be a drug benefit was a huge, huge issue. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and as we know, George W. Bush won. He did get through and Congress did get through a drug benefit. It was structured differently than many Democrats wanted, but nonetheless, it came about. And so mm-hmm. for the year since then, uh, we've had this, this so-called Part D drug benefit in Medicare. Mm-hmm. But it took forever <laughs> to get <laughs> it enacted. Yeah. And, and you look back on that and you go, so what was anybody thinking, right? That we yeah. could have this big, coverage program without a mechanism to pay for prescription drugs so it just tells you these these issues are always there they're going to change it takes a long time to effectuate uh, meaningful changes at the federal policy level in particular Mm -hmm. Um, and it takes the it takes the forces coming together uh, to to uh, bring these things about, but it, I think it's just a, a really powerful illustration that um, these things matter in the lives of people. And as I was yeah. saying, I you know, being able being at the news hour and being able to go and show people who were really struggling because they mm-hmm. even then couldn't afford to pay for their prescription drugs. Uh, I remember going in two thousand uh, out to Michigan and. Uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow was campaigning for office, and that was one of her big platforms, is we've got to get a Medicare drug benefit. And Mm -hmm. then 
I went, you'd go to senior centers and would meet these seniors who were just really, really struggling because if they went into the hospital, their needs got taken care of. If they tried to stay at home in their communities and just keep, afford the drugs that they had to take, they were, they, they were really, really, uh, really struggling financially. So yeah. being able to tell those stories and why this policy mattered, that's how you make health policy interesting to people. Yeah, that's how, that's how you get people hooked. <laughs> so what, what are you doing right now? You're, you're starting a new, are you doing a podcast too? Or you're, you're, you're working with Optum Healthcare? Yes, I'm working with, with Optum. They um, asked me to be the voice of their of an, a podcast that they're starting. It's called Until It's Fixed. Uh, and it, it speaks like to it. some of the issues we've been talking about. The it yeah. here is healthcare. You know, until healthcare is fixed, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to do. Um, I, 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 that, I love that title. It's kind of aspirational because I sort mm-hmm. of think I've concluded healthcare will never really be fixed. <laughs> it's, right. know, it's an issue that will constantly need tending. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I sympathize with the notion that there are many things that we can do and should be doing in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, capabilities of, a, of a, an organization like Optum at this point in time are really, really important to bring to bear on some of the really nettlesome problems we have in healthcare, especially mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. So as, as we all know, um, we spend more, far and away more, on a per person basis than any other country on our healthcare system. The, the next biggest spender usually in any given year is Switzerland, and we spend about 50% more per person than even they do in Switzerland on the health, their healthcare system. And if you've been wow. to Switzerland and seen their hospitals, you, you think, well, they, they couldn't possibly get much better than this. Well, Mm -hmm. it does get more expensive than that. It gets much more expensive here in the United States without comparable comparable health outcomes. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. want any of the leading health indicators. We are so far behind Mm -hmm. our peer countries, uh, partly because we're such a diverse and heterogeneous country, but Mm -hmm. also because we we have this very, very expensive healthcare system. The prices that we charge in our healthcare system are far and away the highest in the world on average. Wow. So so we've got all the, these issues going on. And then one of the other issues, which is almost unique to the United States, is that because we have such a complicated set of insurance schemes, we've got Medicare, we've got Medicaid, we've got commercial insurance, we've got employers. Mm-hmm. Who are so-called self-insured? They're actually paying their employees healthcare out of uh, the corporate pocket. Um, we've got state and local uh, forms of coverage for state and local workers. We, you know, we've got a very fragmented system of of health coverage for people, mm-hmm. and because of that, we have a lot of complexity that's built in at the administrative level. Uh, and basically, what that means is we we hire a ton of people to basically figure out what does this insurance program cover? Mm-hmm. How is that different from what that insurance program covers? How do I, if I'm sitting at a hospital and a doctor does something to a patient and submits a claim, how do I get the right code written on that claim so that the insurance company will pay it? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I document that what the doctor says was done actually was done, right? Right. All of that has historically had to be done manually. Mm-hmm. So, and then that goes to the insurance company who has an equally large phalanx of people saying, did the right diagnostic code get written in here? Was this procedure subject to prior authorization that did or did not happen? Um, is, should we pay this claim or not? Um, if we decide no, then we send it back to the hospital or doctor's office. Somebody back there tears their hair out, goes, okay, now what do we do? Did yeah. we code this wrong? Is the, did the insurance company screw up? Whatever. So that whole administrative piece of our system is so much bigger than anybody else's any other oh no one has anything remotely like this of this mm-hmm. complexity and that costs a lot of money 
And some of the estimates are that that's that we spend as much on that activity every year in the U.S. as we spend on treating all of heart disease in the country. And, and heart disease wow. is the biggest killer of Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you go, well, oh, that seems really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> what, what could we do to make that easier? So mm-hmm. a company like Omton can step in with a lot of sophisticated people who understand First of all, understand this mess. Yeah. Um, understand what 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 are some of the causes of this mess? Whether it's this whole problem around coding, whether it's uh, any form of administrative complexity that can be addressed because you are able to build computer systems and computer programs that first of all keep a lot of this work from being manual and mm-hmm. kind of systematize it, but also uh, deal with with some of these issues around the back and forth and all of that and do a better job of just getting things. If things are going to be pre-authorized, then get that done. Well, Mm -hmm. Um, take that administrative complexity and simplify it. So yeah, these, these are like the really unglamorous parts of health. (laughs) You're never going to see a, a Netflix series about, you know, coding and billing (laughs) you know the dramatic story of the coders who work behind the scenes right yeah yeah never happened but it's it's important stuff and if yeah translates into the fact that your overall health care system is unaffordable to people right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unaffordable and complex beyond all imagination then it needs to be fixed. And yeah. that's partly why we're doing this podcast is to surface these really, really important issues um, that a company like Optum, and Optum's not alone. There are mm-hmm. plenty of other organizations in this field, but to surface that these things are happening, that there are companies that are addressing them and and hopefully getting them fixed. In, in your opinion, which country has healthcare and like health insurance and everything like figured out so that like the, they aren't creating like a huge deficit. They're still getting paid. They're, you know, cause I, I don't know much about like the whole, like the, what healthcare is like in different countries either. So I'm wondering if you have an opinion on that. Well, I would say there, there is no country. that has <laughs> And if you had, if, if we were sitting here today and we had the health minister, you know, usually in most countries, it's called the, the Ministry of Health. We call ours mm-hmm. the Department of Health and Human Services. Mm-hmm. So if you had our head of health and human services and the health ministers of all, all the top 20 richest countries in the world mm-hmm. here today, and you said, raise your hand, the person here who believes your health system has got it all figured out, not one hand would go up. Yeah. Because... Everybody understands every system is dealing with something. Right. And usually it's more than one something. It's some things, right? That mm-hmm. because this this is enormously, enormously complicated business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in, in almost every country, you're you're fin- you're paying the bills for healthcare partly through taxes mm-hmm. at the public setting, but also there's a lot of private spending everywhere, even even places where people think they know how the system works. Like like people will tell me, you know, Canada has a single payer system. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. It has it has a program called Medicare. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is true. Uh, it is financed in part at the federal level in Canada, but also by the provinces. But there also is private insurance available mm-hmm. in Canada as well. And the provinces also uh, are the entities that, that create the prescription drug program in Canada. So okay. could you call that a single-payer system? Not literally. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a hybrid system. Now, is it more publicly financed than our system is in terms of the, the proportions? Yes. Mm-hmm. But if you think about our 
insurance system. So we so we have a very large program, Medicaid, with more than 70 million enrollees. We've got a very large program, Medicare. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of state and local spending. We we have essentially close to half of our healthcare spending is run through public insurance programs of some sort or another. So you could look at what we're doing. You, you could say, well, the Americans are, are basically running four or five Canada's in terms yeah. of the magnitude of the, right? Mm-hmm. And, and nobody makes the mistake of calling us a single payer system because we're not. But right. by the same token, Canada's not really single payer either. Mm-hmm. So, because what it is doing is very different from, say, the system in, in, um, in the countries who, are, who make up the United Kingdom. So... Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off point, but <laughs> to your question, no country feels like they've got it figured out. Yeah. Um, there are countries that we can learn from mm-hmm. uh, at what they do better than we do. And yeah. one big takeaway, I think, for our system is that almost every country puts more money proportionally into primary care than we do. Um, we wow. we we spend more of our dollars on specialty care and less on primary care. Mm-hmm. We pay our primary care physicians and clinicians less, much less than we pay specialists. Yeah. Um, and the gap between pr- what primary care is paid and specialty care is paid in most other countries is much narrower than here. And in fact, primary care docs are usually paid much better in other countries than they tend to be paid here on a relative basis. So oh. that's a real takeaway that we mm-hmm. can learn because we, we have lots of research that shows if you spend more money on primary care, you will get better health outcomes for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you so want to prevent it before you have to treat it. Yeah. So, but, but we don't do that. So that, that's a clear takeaway that we could take away from more than one country. Yeah. Doing things better than we are. Wow. On the, on the other hand, you know, other countries have also copied us. Oh, yeah, to some degree. Mm-hmm. They've, um, if you take uh, even England, for example, um, which has the National Health Service, that's mm-hmm. a tax-funded system. Uh, it's not monolithic. You know, the, the 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 what's called a primary care doctor there, which is called general general practitioners GPs. Okay, they, they don't work for the government. They are private physicians they're they're because they're in the national because they treat patients in the context of the national health service their the, the rules of the national health service do apply to them but the, but the docs are independent and private mm-hmm. and they have their issues with it <laughs> like oh everybody would imagine they would yeah but, but um but then when you go to a hospital uh which are run by those, the hospitals are run by trusts, they're foundation trusts. Those mm-hmm. are government hospitals and the specialists work for the hospitals and they are National Health Service employees. Um, the, the tax funding of the National Health Service, you know, as I say, all, country, all countries think their health system is too expensive, even if it's much less expensive than ours is. They, they, yeah. They worry about it. They worry about the tax burden on citizens, and they worry about the cost of the system. And so, mm-hmm. what, the, what 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 has been done in England is people said, you know, we can't. Maybe we can't finance this whole system through the tax code, and maybe people mm-hmm. want more mm-hmm. in healthcare than they're willing to pay in taxes. So, how do we deal with that? We have to create some kind of a small private insurance system. Mm-hmm. So that people can buy private insurance, and if they want to, they can get out from under the National Health Service and go through the private system. Interesting. So, so they looked at us and they said, "Huh, maybe those <laughs> Americans are onto something in having some private health insurance, which can be a kind of relief valve in the system, mm-hmm. right?" Mm-hmm. So it, you can be in England. You can go through the uh, National Health Service and see a specialist, but the very same specialist can also go down the street 
to a private office and see you if you have private health insurance. And you possibly could, because you had private health insurance, jump the queue, right? Wow. Of okay. In line to see the specialist through the public system. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to England, you will find people who think that's really great that we did that. And <laughs> yeah. you will find people who say that is anathema that we did that. Right? <laughs> um, just like here. Yeah. But it just tells you, you know, countries are always looking around saying, who's dealing with these problems in a Mm -hmm. different way than we are? And is there anything we can learn from them? Yeah. We need to learn a fair amount from other countries. And they have obviously learned from us for better. For Right. So I always like to kind of, you know, end with like, like, what are, what are you most proud of in your career? I am most proud of having taken these pretty complex topics mm-hmm. and made made them understandable and accessible to people. Yeah. As much as I as much as I have been able to do. I, I can't say that I've always succeeded because sometimes they're very complicated. But <laughs> to give people a sense that that these issues are important, that they matter, that they affect people's lives, Mm -hmm. um, that we all have an obligation to understand them at least some Mm -hmm. and not be misled by people who want to manipulate our understanding or our opinions, Mm -hmm. but really come to grips with, with reality, how, how these issues are affecting the lives of other people. And um, and essentially using my skills as a, a communicator and explainer to to open these doors for people. Yeah, I think you can be very proud of that. I mean, you've you've helped me understand more in the hour that we've been talking than um, than I managed to figure out in like twelve years as a bedside nurse. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Hardly that. <laughs> if the tables were turned, you, you could teach me a ton about nursing. I'm sure I'm quite confident of that. Well, Susan, one more time, where will your podcast and stuff be available? Everywhere podcasts are generally available. Um, awesome. Apple Podcasts, obviously, as well as the other podcast services, you'll be able to find us. It's, again, it's until it's fixed and it makes its debut in October. That's so exciting. When does it come out in October? I believe our release date is the 6th. That's my birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday. (laughs) You know you get a new podcast for your birthday, Danielle. I'm so, I'm flattered. That's really a beautiful gift. Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) From the bottom of our hearts. Well, I'm so grateful to you, Susan, for, you know, making the time and your ability to, um, to explain these, these complicated policies. Um, I, I mean, like, I'm definitely excited to, to kind of jump in a little bit more on, on policy and learning. And, you know, I have this, this platform and I want to, you know, be able to empower and drop knowledge and stuff on on these subjects as well. So thank well, thank you. <laughs> happy to help any of your listeners. And uh, just one tip, uh, a good all-around source of information about health policy is uh, all everything published by the Kaiser Family Foundation at okay. KFF, as in KaiserFamilyFoundation.org. Um, very readable, very explainable background materials on every issue that matters in policy and they've got a number of news services through their news news or their news organization kaiser health news puts out a daily roundup of of key issues in health policy as they're covered by news media organizations across the country you can sign up for that uh just a wealth of information for and it's really the go-to place for anybody starting out to learn about what's going on in health policy Awesome. I'm going to include that in the show notes for everybody. Great. 
All right, Susan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. And you too, Danielle. And happy birthday. Thank you. Another massive thank you to Susan Denser. Y'all, I'm jazzed and empowered. Make sure to check out her podcast, Until It's Fixed, which drops October 6th, and the Kaiser Family Foundation for more information on healthcare policy and how we can help make these changes in healthcare for each other. Thank you all for tuning in. Don't forget to send in your nurse D energy moments to me at the WOMED. Thank you. I love you. Until next week, WOMED out. Thank you.